Welcome to Drugs Did This, a conversation about the impact of alcohol and other drugs on people who live in the center of the Tar Heel State. We will share stories from people in recovery, from people who have lost loved ones to addiction, and from people whose loved ones are still ensnared by their addictions. We will hear from people in the community. It may be a counselor, a paramedic, or a police officer, people whose jobs bring them in daily contact with those struggling with addiction. My name is Chip Womack. I will be your host. After more than three decades as a journalist, I now work at Keaton's Place, a recovery resource center in Asheboro, North Carolina, which brings you this weekly podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Bob Shackelford, who many in Randolph County know as the former president of Randolph Community College. He retired uh, last summer. Most of our guests to date have been people in recovery sharing their story. Our first guest was Susan Hunt, who shared the story of her son, Keaton, who died of a fentanyl overdose in the summer of 2019. Many families have been touched by addiction in Randolph County, and Dr. Shackelford is here today to tell us about his experiences uh, with a loved one. Welcome, Dr. Shackelford. Thank you, Chip. It's very good to be here. What can you tell us about uh, how substance use has touched your family? Well, in a profound way. Um, substance abuse uh, first came to my attention with my uh, my son, Corey. And he was actually uh, involved in substance abuse a long time before I realized it, before I recognized it. And looking back, I feel foolish that I didn't see it more clearly, but I think that's one of the things about it uh, that prevents uh, people from getting help in a timely manner is because families have their heads in the sand and they can't really imagine that this is happening to me and to my child. Uh, in fact, he was in uh, substance abuse for a good while uh, before it really came to my full attention. I say full attention because as I look back, there were things I should have seen that I didn't. But uh, it, it blew up in my consciousness when my daughter, uh, Corey's sister, called me one night and said that she had taken Corey to a detox. And and I was like, well, why? And she was explaining, he's he's not in very good shape, Dad. And, uh, and I immediately was just jolted, like, well, I, I had no idea there was a, such a such a problem that would require detox. And, um, and I say all of this uh, about how unprepared I was to face this because uh, I had no idea. I, I truly, uh, it, it's embarrassing to say I had my head in sand. In fact, after uh, many years as a pastor and many years as a military chaplain, I cannot imagine looking back how many families and individuals were struggling with alcoholism and substance abuse. And I thought I was a good minister and a good chaplain and a good counselor. And I look back now and I was totally 
unprepared to be the help that I thought I could be as a minister and a chaplain. I wish I could go back to some of those families and say, well, with what I know now, let me rewind and try to help you in a better way. So it's kind of embarrassing until I was thrown in the fire. And so, uh, so when, when, uh, he went to detox, uh, on an emergency basis and I didn't understand, I didn't know what all was going on, how long he'd be there, what they would be doing. And, uh, they said it was imperative that we get him in a, a, uh, drug treatment center. And, uh, I had remembered through the years that, uh, a well-regarded center was Fellowship Hall in Greensboro. And we put him in Fellowship Hall for 28 days. And, uh, and, and, and I, I can't believe the blindness still continued because I really thought those 28 days were going to fix him. And even at the end of those 28 days, I was so naive, I still thought that he was just drinking too much. I did not have any idea that he'd gone through many levels of drugs and was seriously into uh, cocaine. And uh, I mean, I, I still, even after being at Fellowship Hall and going to Parents Week and everything else, uh, Family Week, I had no idea. So it, it was a, I was in such denial that I had to be drugged into reality. And I got there gradually, and uh, that prevented me from being the uh, the help I could have been to him earlier. So, uh, and ever since then, I have learned so much that I wish I had known back then. I've learned the hard way. It's been trial through fire. Well, the saying is, you don't know what you don't know, and so... Your son went to rehab. It was stunning to you that he was going to begin with. But just like you were not in a position to be able to help former parishioners, you couldn't help yourself because you you had no understanding of what addiction was all about. Well, that that's right. And and uh, again, it's it's almost embarrassing to look back and to think that with all the education I had, uh, uh, with, with all the, the the seminary education on pastoral care and counseling and therapy and and uh, uh, two masters and PhD with all the experience I had as a counselor and a chaplain and all the education I had, I still was a victim of the the uh, preconceived notions, uh, the myths. About addiction, I, I I still was I was I was caught up in the stereotypes. Uh, I mean, I would have thought I was smarter than this, but the truth of it is, I realize now that I still somewhere deep inside me still thought, well, if you have enough willpower, and uh, was was not quite willing to accept that it's a disease because you started it off by drinking or doing drugs in the first place, and uh, uh, you know it, that 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 you could fix. And uh, so so I really thought, I, I, I remember saying to Corey when he was uh, in his last week at Fellowship Hall, I remember saying to him, well, this is going to work out okay because I remember when you were a little boy and you asked me to teach you to ride a bicycle. And I had a meeting at the church and I left and went there. I said, I'll be back in about an hour, hour and a half. 
by the time I came back, you taught yourself how to ride and was riding around the house. And then one summer when I was a uh, uh, working as a counselor for one week at uh, Camp Caraway, you wanted me to teach you how to swim. Well, I had to go speak to four cabins of boys that morning. I said, after lunch, I'll take you out and teach you how to swim. And by the time we got to the pool after lunch, you'd already taught yourself how to swim that morning. And so I remember saying to him at Fellowship Hall, I said, son, you taught yourself how to ride a bicycle. You taught yourself how to swim. When you set your mind to something, you can do it. So I know that you can decide you're not going to be an addict anymore. I mean, I really thought that it was just a matter of flipping a switch and making a decision and just be stronger, just have more discipline, just 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 uh, concentrate on better results. And 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 it's it's uh it's unbelievable to me that even at that point, while he is in his first treatment center, I was no more help than that. Well, it is uh, an attitude or a belief that many people have about substance use that it uh, involves a lack of personal uh, responsibility, a moral failure to some degree, when they would look at a physical illness such as diabetes or heart disease and not think the same thing. Uh, An individual needs help, and an individual needs lots of help and support uh, when substance use is involved because the drugs actually change your brain. Well, that, that's that's right. In fact, one of the things that was most helpful to me uh, when uh, when I went to Family Week at Fellowship Hall, one of the doctors uh, stood up there at a board one day with a chalk, and he was drawing some diagrams of what happens in the brain when when you take drugs. And I was very interested in that because, uh, again, I was uh, living uh, in the shadow of these myths and preconceptions. And But when he started explaining it chemically, I was very interested. I was a chemical uh, engineering major when I first went to college and loved chemistry, and I was watching this. And as he explained it and showed how the drug makes this part of your brain react chemically a different way, and, that, and I started to understand, for example, that just a, a fundamental truth that, that that addicts don't take drugs or drink to get high, but they're so in such a depressed state uh, physically and psychologically and emotionally that they are actually abusing the substances to get normal. So they're 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 down under trying to get up to normality rather than normal. You see, we think well. Everybody else is satisfied with the normal state. Okay, there's a normal state of happiness. We all get it. We don't have to be giddy all day, every day. There's a normal state of happiness. Why can't you be satisfied with that? Why do you have to go get high? Uh, I don't have to be on the, on top of the world every day, every minute to uh, live my life. I'm satisfied with the normal state of life, the normal state of uh, uh, kind of level ground mentally and physically. And so why do addicts feel like they have to be at some exaggerated state? And and he was explaining chemically they are not seeking an exaggerated mm-hmm. state. 
once they drank and once they took the drugs, the part of their brain that creates that chemically, that sense of well-being, that sense that life is okay, the brain quits producing that because it turns that over to the drug. So then when you don't have the drug, you don't have the same sense of well-being that the brain produces in people who aren't addicted to drugs. And, and I sat there and watched that, and it, it was it, it was like taking scales off my eyes. I, I said, wow, uh, you know, I, I, that never dawned on me. So I realized then that I had a lot to learn. And you did have a lot to learn because it was uh, just baby steps in beginning to understand the disease of addiction. Right. And uh, even though those scales were off of your eyes, I would imagine you still thought, Corey has finished this 28-day program. He's a very smart and capable and driven young man. He's got this. Well, you're exactly right. I still had such a long way to go. And I look back, and there's one question I kept asking for years that frustrated him, and I didn't understand why it frustrated him because I thought it was a normal, intuitive question. But this question in itself let him know that I didn't understand. And I, I remember when he had a job that he really loved and and uh, he was very good at, and uh, I was concerned about him and hoping he's staying on the path and all. And one night I said to him, well, why don't I meet you for coffee after work? And we'll just sit down and visit and see how you're doing, that kind of thing. Well, he texted me and said he wasn't going to be able to uh, to meet me because he was uh, he was very tired from work. He was going to go home and go to bed. Well, as it turns out, he didn't go home. He didn't go to bed. Uh, he left and went to Greensboro and Nobody knew where he was for a couple of days. He didn't show up at work. He lost his job. And after I went to try to find him and try to get help for him and all that, when we were able to sit down, I said, son, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? You knew you would lose your job and you love your job. So I was trying to make it logical. Like, okay, if I go out tonight and take drugs I'm not going to go to work. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my income. Could kill myself. And I said, that, that's just not logical. What were you thinking? And he kept trying to explain to me that if I understood anything about addiction, I wouldn't ask him what was he thinking because he wasn't thinking. But I could not, I could not connect the dots between exhibiting a behavior with total disregard for the consequences. And yet... I have actually read in some books and some uh, uh, articles that one of the definitions of addiction is that you engage in behaviors with total disregard for the consequences. And uh, since then, I mean, I, 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 I've met uh, I've met uh, young women who were addicts who who lost their children, and they would die for their children. But at the same time, they were not thinking that. The old commercial about this is your brain, this is your brain's brain on drugs, it's the truth. And and for me to think that addiction was something you enter into thinking about the consequences was a total disregard for the nature of addiction. 
So how did your understanding of, uh, and how long did it take for your understanding to evolve to a greater understanding of what is actually happening with with your son and with others who struggle with substance use? Well, it's a continuing journey. I can't say now that I passed the test and I have the certificate and I understand addiction, but uh, I'm light years ahead of where I was. And uh, but it, it has been it, it has been learning by experience. Uh, every relapse shocked me, made me question what I understood, made me realize how little I knew about addiction and relapse. And 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 I, I remember first time I heard the phrase uh, "relapse is a part of recovery." I'm thinking, well, that makes no sense. Why? And and so it's a continuing learning experience and unfortunately the way i learned it was through the ongoing journey with him this rehab center get out get a job get a department relapse another treatment center relapse go back and all of these things every time you know i i, I begin to ask why can't and, and being a father, I always want to fix things for my children and for my family. I'm thinking, okay, maybe I'm not taking them to the right treatment center. Or maybe uh, maybe there's another kind of – maybe there's a different doctor that can help him, a different therapist, a different drug, a different medication uh, that can help him. And, and uh, it was just this agony of ongoing relapses and treatment centers and, and conversations with him that a lot of times we were just butting heads because I'm trying to reason – my way through it, and that's not what he's experiencing. And so we're just uh, like passing like ships in the night and not communicating very well about it, which means I'm not helping him. It, in fact, it just makes him think that, I, that I'm just feeding into the uh, – uh, I'm, I'm feeding in, uh, into all the uh, labeling and the, and the misunderstandings, and, and, and I thought I was above it, but it just it, – every step of the way I learned something new – and I have a completely different understanding now to the point that I'm, I'm asked sometimes to come and uh, uh, talk to groups about uh, about the myths about addiction and, and how families can move past that to provide better care for their loved ones. Well, why don't you share some of those myths with us uh, now? Okay. Well, a couple that I've mentioned, but I'll point them out. That these are things that uh, I think uh, that, that people typically think. And that is, uh, one is the first one that, that I mentioned briefly. That is that, uh, that the way to overcome addiction is that you just got to be stronger. You just got to have more willpower. Uh, you, you've got to have more self-discipline. And, you know, that kind of, it, it, it's a, it's kind of a reflection of Nancy Reagan's solution. Just say no. Well, I thought that was a ridiculous answer, but at the same time, I was saying the same thing using different words. And I, I, I guess one of, the, uh, one of the myths is that, that the uh, substance abuser has the strength within himself or herself to mentally overcome this and to grit their teeth and clench their fists and muscle their way through it. I just won't go to a bar. Uh, 
I just won't go to where my dealer lives. I'll just delete those numbers, and I won't be in touch with them anymore. I don't want to live like this. Uh, I actually had a uh, an extended member of my family say to me one time, uh, not too long ago, you need to tell Corey to just get up every morning and look in the mirror and say, I am not an addict. And if he does that every morning, he'll be okay. Well, that is the myth right there, that it is a matter of mental discipline and willpower. Uh, that, that, that's, that's just not the case. An example that I was given during, uh, uh, during family week was uh, the doctor said to me, I told him about my struggle to understand this. How, how could it be you, you participate in behaviors that are so contradictory to where you want to end up? And he said, well, imagine this. Imagine that you and I were up to our chest out in the ocean, and we went under water. I said, hold your breath as long as you can. And while we were underwater, I held up a board with a message in front of your face that said, we have learned that the air above is now toxic and will kill you. Do not go up. He said, will that board convince you not to go up? He said, you're going to hold your breath as long as you can, but I guarantee you, even knowing that the air is toxic, you will involuntarily break the surface and take a huge gasp. And he said, for you to say to your son, what were you thinking? Like, didn't I tell you that was toxic? It's like if he was underwater and you told him not to go up. So the fact that you can say to someone, well, don't go up. It's just mental discipline. That's a myth. Another myth is, or something you mentioned a few moments ago, that is that uh, addiction is simply a moral failing. Well, that is absolutely a myth. And uh, I, I know that comes from an attitude, well, uh, drinking and drug use, oh, that's bad. That's bad. That's sin. It, you shouldn't have ever taken the first drink in the first place. It's just a moral failure. Well, if you hadn't done that, you wouldn't be an addict. Well, that's easy to say. And may the one without sin cast the first stone. Um, and even if, if your thing is not drugs or alcohol, there are other things you should have done better at. And uh, uh, far be it for me or for many of us to pick up a rock and throw it at someone else. It, it, it is a bump in the road. Um, but it's like a doctor said to me one time when I was talking to him about Corey. He said, most all boys are coming up through high school. Most all boys are going to go out with some guys one night. They're going to experiment. Most high school boys are going to drink a beer. So 95% of them may drink socially, recreationally for a while. As adults, they may continue to drink uh, socially. They may have a beer after mowing the grass, but they're okay. Five of those boys got addicted. Five of those boys, it changed the chemistry of their brain based on their heredity and everything else and their own body chemistry. He said, you think that Corey worked himself into this addiction over years? I'll tell you the truth. I believe he was addicted the first time he drank a beer. He was one of the five. He's one of the five. Now, that doesn't mean he is worse 
than the other 95. He's more immoral than the other 95. It means that there was a there was a history in his family. He had he had a a a physical and psychological bent toward addiction. And when he got in that place, he jumped in over his head into something he had no idea about. And and you know, I think well, I've tried to explain, for example, talk about uh, these uh, stereotypes. When I describe Corey to someone, I tell them I have a son who's in addiction. It seems important to me to defend his honor and to say he's not one of these just bad seeds, bad eggs, uh, just just an unseemly character who's a thug. And and he's not somebody who's going to go out here and and and, and hurt people. He, he's he's not some reprobate. Corey is a good kid. He has a good heart. He's smart. He cares. He has never hurt anybody in the world but himself. He would give you the shirt off his back. He is a wonderful young man with one of the biggest hearts I've ever seen in my life. But he's an addict. And, and, and I think I do that because I know that one of the labels people put on addicts is, oh, these are bad people, when actually these people are doctors and nurses and ministers and uh, law enforcement. Uh, these people are the sons and daughters of doctors and nurses and ministers and law enforcement. These are people who live in the big homes just like they do the small homes. They live in... Uh, middle class and well-to-do families. It's not just it's not just uneducated, poor people without any values and any ethics. It it it's you you can't just label and say if someone is addicted, okay, they're a moral failure, they're weak. But but this is how we tend to think, even if we don't do it consciously. I think we we subconsciously when we we see them, it's, it's like we think. Bad, bad, and and I have told Corey, and I've told people about Corey. You are not bad. You are a wonderful young man with a disease, and 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 I had to move past that to think. That's one of the reasons I think really that I had such a hard time seeing this in him and realizing that he was drinking and doing drugs is because he wasn't bad. He wasn't a moral failure. He uh, uh, he believes in God. He he uh, he is kind to people. He's giving to people. And so, why would I think he was an addict? You know, that's bad people. Well, it isn't bad people. It's it's people with a disease, with a uh, chemical disposition toward addiction. And so that's that's just another one of the myths. And and. Uh, um, Another myth is that, uh, well, they've got to hit rock bottom, so you can't help them till then. So just step back and and let them hit rock bottom. Well, for a lot of people, rock bottom is the grave, and uh, so we think, well, when they go to jail or when they lose their family or when they they have an overdose or something, you have to support addicts if it's their first day in substance abuse. Or years into it, you don't sit back and say, well, when they hit rock bottom. Uh, that's a myth. It's one that's often repeated. But uh, uh, every addict needs support and encouragement and help today. 
not when they hit some imagined rock bottom. Uh, Tip, I could go on and on about the myths, but those are just some of the things that drive our thinking and prevent us from being the kind of help we could be for addicts. Uh, We've talked about the disease of addiction and, and the effect and the causes for the individual experiencing that addiction. We haven't talked yet about the impact on the loved ones and the family. So besides the fact that you were incredulous and had a very difficult time wrapping your head around the idea that your son had an addiction to substances, how did it impact you and your life? Well, in a in some profound ways. Uh, that's a very insightful question because um, I remember seeing a billboard many, many years ago. It said, if you have a family member with a problem with substance abuse, you have a problem with substance abuse. And this is very true. Um, I can't tell you how many nights that I was out riding around two or three cities in the vicinity, hunting his car in the most seedy places. My chest tightened up, hoping and praying that he's still alive. And there's so many times he could have died along the way. He's been robbed. He's been beaten. He's had guns pulled on him. He's been threatened. And every time I I would be riding out in the middle of the night and spend all night riding around hunting his car, trying to see if he was still alive, sometimes I couldn't find him, and I'd come back home as the sun was coming up and get a shower and go to work. And I've got all this on me. I've been up all night. I'm worried to death about him, and I've got some big meeting at 8 o'clock and some other uh, speaking engagement at 9 o'clock or this. And, and, and I'm going to work, and everybody says, good morning, how are you today? Well, I'm not very good, but I can't tell you about it. And so I smile, say, I'm doing fine, hope you are. And then I go on. Well, that goes on night after night, day after day, a hundred times over a period of months and years. And it, I, I began to realize that, that I've got this tightness in my chest nearly all the time. Even when he's doing well, I'm thinking, well, I've thought that many times. And then the other shoe drops. And so I can't even enjoy when he's doing well because I'm uptight and I'm looking for every little sign. Well, he hadn't texted me tonight. He, I wonder, and I find myself just worried about his his mother's health is a wreck. Uh, I have, uh, uh, I know that it's had physical impacts on me. And uh, uh, I do, uh, I can feel the impact of that stress because it's not a stress like that happens, like if somebody runs a red light and you slam the brakes and you almost hit him. Then you're relieved and you go on and you have a better day. It's stress that just stays and stays and stays and stays. And then you try to relax and it comes back again. And you say, oh, 
Why did I let my guard down? And so, so it, it has a profound impact on you the way that serious stress that never goes away has on a person. And I'm convinced that most people in the hospital uh, are there. One of the main reasons they're there is because of the impact of stress over a course of time. So stress for the family of an addict that you love, nothing is more stressful than to have a loved one killing himself and you having absolutely no power whatsoever to stop it. I heard a quote on the radio this morning that I thought was profound. It says, a parent is never more happy than his or her unhappiest child. And that's the stress that you live under constantly. Besides that, and uh, this is... uh, uh, It's had a huge impact on his sister. They grew up so close. And she's like me. She wants to help him. It's not in her power to help him. And she gets frustrated, and she gets upset, and she cries and and, and wants to help him and can't and loves him. So so this, this constant agony and stress of having no power to help someone that you love who's destroying himself. Besides that, it has more outreaching impact. For example, uh, my wife is not Corey's mother. Corey was born to my first wife and me. Well, my current wife, we have a son together, a son named Will. And Corey is her stepson. Well, she and I come to understanding Corey from two different places. And and it's 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 very hard uh when when she and and my daughter get upset with Corey because don't you know you're 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 gonna drive your dad into the grave, you're gonna drive your mother into the grave and, and, and they have less patience with him than I, I I'm never gonna give up on him. I never will give up on him. And 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 yet there is no, there's no real reason that my wife can feel the same thing about a stepson that I feel about a son. Now I know the family ties there, but it's it's just different. And a feeling like, well, my son Will would never do that. So so why don't why don't you get Corey straightened out? Well, I can't get Corey straightened out, and and don't say it'll never happen to your son. Uh, I would have sworn to you it'll never happen to Corey. And so it, it's just, it, it creates stresses about money I spend on it. The amount of money I've spent on treatment centers and doctors and therapists and psychiatrists and medications over the past 25 years, I could have bought the bill more for, for what I've spent on him. Well, explain that to your next wife. And, and it continues, and it's like, is there any end to this? Is this is I, I mean, what's the deal? And so then the, the it's easier it's easier for her to say you're enabling him. It's easier for her than it is for his mother to say that, because she and I know if we hadn't if we hadn't supported him, he would be dead right now. I know that for a fact. He would be dead right now. He is. He's had so many close calls that it. 
we have given him incredible support. Well, it's easier for the next layer of family out to say, well, you're enabling him. He's manipulating you. He's using you. And I am keenly aware of that dynamic. And I have tried to enable his recovery and not enable his disease. But that line is very gray, very gray. And so, so you, you know, you, you, end up, um, you end up not wanting to talk about money you're spending on him. You're not wanting to say, oh, did you know this cost me another $20,000 this month at such and such a place or this? It just ends up being a strain with the whole family. And then, you know, I think about, I think about my other children. Well, while I'm throwing fortunes at helping him, I've got to be sure that I'm not saying no to my rest of my family because I spent that money on Corey. It's, it's just a, it's, it's a constant tension and stress. And uh, there, there, there are many times that I don't even want to discuss him and the money and the treatment and how he's doing uh, with even people in the family, because I know it's just gonna, it's just gonna throw a wrench in the works. Uh, I could go on and on, but I and I I don't want to be uh, just hang out all the dirty laundry. But I, I'm telling you, families are thrown into turmoil when a loved one is suffering from addiction. Well, you said early on in the conversation. The first time Corey went to treatment, that you were a father, you felt as if it were was your job to fix him, and and then you eventually reached the understanding that you are powerless to fix him. That's a that's a long road. Do you remember when you began to to understand that? Yes, you can support him, but you cannot take this journey for him, and you cannot fix him. Well, it wasn't a particular day that the page was turned. Um, I'm still learning that. I mean, I know it a lot better than I knew it. But uh, um, uh, I remember many years ago, and I'm going somewhere with this story. I remember many years ago, a friend and I walked into a, an office depot one night near closing time. And we walked into the middle of an armed robbery and the two gunmen put us on the floor and they had nine millimeter guns and they had a mask over their face and they were robbing the store and took a clerk back to the safe and all that. And I remember sitting there when we survived it, my friend and I looked back on that experience. We've talked about it numerous times over the years it was so different than I ever expected that experience to be because I thought what you'd feel is fear. It wasn't exactly fear that I felt when I sat there thinking my life's about to end. What I, the worst feeling I ever had, it was the fear of having absolutely no control over how this ends. I cannot run. I cannot hide. I cannot fight back. If I walk out here tonight, these two thugs are going to give me permission to walk out of here. And if they don't, there's not a thing I can do about it. This is not in my, I can't sit down and explain. Listen, I've got a, re, a lot of reasons that it's important for me to live. I've got a lot of things. Let, let me explain to you why my life 
is important. I have no power. It's up to them. That was, even talking about it right now, I can hardly breathe just thinking, remembering that feeling. That's how I feel with Corey. I, and I have to remind myself, this is the thing. I have fear for him. I have hope for him. I have love for him. I have support for him. But one of the things that I experience in dealing with him is this uncomfortable, painful, almost sense of panic because this is important and the outcome is important, but I have no power over it. That's a hard thing to fully accept because it doesn't feel good. How do you... Yeah. When people share their recovery story or their story of addiction, often they say the first thing they thought of every morning when they opened their eyes was, do I have any drugs? How am I going to get my drugs today? When you open your eyes in the morning, is Corey near the top of your thoughts? He absolutely is, and I know it's a day-to-day thing, and I know that no matter how much time you have in recovery, every day is a new opportunity, but it's a new challenge. And I just think every morning, oh, God, just help him today, just today. If we can get through, if he can go to bed tonight clean and sober and mentally in a good place, emotionally in a good place, it'll be a good day. Oh, God, help him today. And then the same thing that night, and the same thing the next morning, and the same thing the next night. It, it, it's a, it's a never-ending journey. As I mentioned to you, this podcast, one of the purposes is to help raise awareness about what is happening in Ashburn, Randolph County related to substance use, and the other is to push back against the stigma that is so great. Um, What do you have to say about other families that are dealing with loved ones struggling with addiction? Um, And what do you have to say to people who have not been touched to it like you were that first time those many years ago? Well, the stigma is profound. And the stigma prevents people with addiction issues from getting the help they need. It keeps them from reaching out because they're thinking, you don't understand, you're going to judge me, Uh, You're not able to give me the help I need. And the stigma causes us to put these people in a capsule and just want it to go away rather than knowing how to adequately uh, relate to them and understand them and love them and support them. Um, These issues don't just happen to bad people and bad families in the bad part of town or anything like that. This is, you talk about a pandemic. This is absolutely a pandemic. There are very few families anywhere of any social status or any economic status that are not touched by addiction. And 
and yet we have we keep quiet about it. We're embarrassed about it. We don't want to we we don't want to face it ourselves, much less uh, get the help we need or talk about it. We we want to put a blanket over it and hide it. You know this this is we don't talk about Uncle Joe. Uh, we don't talk about my my grandson who I know what he's doing, but we just don't talk about it. No, this touches every family. And so I would encourage anyone who who has this in, in their, their, their family or anyone who is touched by it themselves um, to, to try to make a conscious effort to reject the stigma and the myths and the preconceived notions and, and, and spend as much as you can learn and listen rather than just quote the little platitudes and simple that, well, just say no. We just get up and look in the mirror every day and say, I'm not an addict. And, well, uh, you should have never gotten this uh, situation in the first place. Uh, well, what were you thinking? Uh, we, we need to move past that and and start to read. There's some there's some very good books and even movies that, that talk about this. Uh, I remember reading uh, Beautiful Boy uh, about a man who struggled with this with his son, and he had all these attitudes, and he learned about it along the way. Um, the, the, the more we learn about it, it hasn't helped me to solve all his problems. But I'm able to be a strength to him in ways that I could not when I was coming from a more judgmental framework. And so, uh, well, I put it like this, Chip. I said when I was retiring this past summer that I'm going to, there's a couple of books I really want to write. And one that I really am going to write is things I learned after I already knew everything. And I promise you that one of the chapters in that book is going to be everything I thought I knew about addiction was wrong. And so um, the more you think you understand addiction, that's just a sign of how little you do understand about it. If I sat here and told you uh, today that I didn't know much about it, but I finally got it all figured out, you ought to just erase this tape and not ever broadcast this podcast because that shows that I am totally in denial about addiction. So learn what you can. Uh, there are so many intriguing books and informational and movies and articles and 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 I've tried to I've tried to research things like like what about AA or NA versus other type? What are the new treatments? Are there drug treatments? What are doctors saying? Articles on on uh, denial. Articles on. I've tried to learn more about enabling, and and uh, um, how to. I mean, Google. I would Google. How do you support an addict without enabling him? And then there are going to be numerous articles. Read and learn because until we get on somewhat of a level that we can at least communicate with them. We're not going to be able to provide much help. I appreciate your sharing today so openly and so honestly, because as you pointed it out, many people do not want to talk about the issue of substance use 
and how it affects our society or how it affects their family. And until we do that, the problem will continue to grow. It's not a problem without solutions, but it is a problem that we all need to open our eyes to and try to understand as best we can and lend a helping hand without judgment. Well, we can learn to provide help even when we don't have all the answers and we don't know the solution. Uh, not long ago, Corey was going through a personal matter. It had nothing to do with addiction, but he was going through a personal matter that I knew was profoundly hurtful for him. And I was so afraid that this was going to throw him back into a relapse, not knowing what to say, not wanting to offer little pat answers, not saying to him, oh, God, Corey, don't, don't go relapse. I mean, none of that's going to help. I finally, one night, sent him a text. He, he said he didn't want to talk about anything right then. I had to understand that. And I finally sent him a text, and all it said was, wherever you are, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're experiencing, please know that I'm with you, I'm holding you up, and I love you. And that is a beautiful place to end our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. Please recommend this podcast to your family and friends. To learn more about Keaton's Place, visit www.keatonsplace.org. That's www.k-e-a-t-o-n-s-p-l-a-c-e.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And join us next week for another episode of Drugs Did This. Until then, peace and light. <laughs>